Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that, uh, that it would go deep into our hearts tonight, that we would be truly transformed and changed by it. And so, please just speak to us tonight for your glory. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, tonight finds us in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel is uh, the third longest book of the Bible. In case you're ever in you know, a trivia game and they want to know what not what's the first or second or fourth longest book of the Bible, but the third, Ezekiel's the answer. Um, it's the fourth of the major prophets. We've said, you know, we have the, the Pentateuch or the Torah is the first five books of the Old Testament, and then we have the history, and then we have the poetry, and then we have the major prophets, and then we have the minor prophets. So, um, we're truthfully in the home stretch of the Old Testament at this point. And so, last week was Jeremiah and Lamentations. This week is Ezekiel. And you would think the next week would be Daniel. But it's not, because next week should be Daniel. But with my legendary attention to detail, uh, I'm going to be out of town next Wednesday. I thought it was the Wednesday after that. And so Larry was going to teach Hosea, because I was going to be out of town on the Wednesday when we covered Hosea, but I'm actually in town on the Wednesday when we covered Daniel, so we just decided it'd make more sense just to swap the books. So next week we'll do Hosea, and the week after that we'll do Daniel, which makes perfect sense. Um, but Ezekiel is where we're at tonight. Ezekiel, um, if you can remember, in the nation of Israel's history, they come into the promised land, they wind up with their kings, the nation divides into the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom never has a godly king. They never have a period of revival after the division. Judah, the nation of Judah, which includes the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, includes a lot of the Levites and uh, some of the tribe of Simeon, actually, too. But, um, but the nation of Judah has good kings and bad kings. They're a little hit or miss, and they wind up, over time, degrading spiritually to a point where the Lord allows them to be carried off captive by the nation of Babylon. They're carried off in three different waves. The Babylonians came and took a group and then came back a few years later, took another group, came back and did the final destroy the city, burn the temple, break down the wall, and carry, over, carry off who's ever left. So in that first wave, uh, Daniel would have been carried away. And in this second wave, uh, Ezekiel is carried away. And so Ezekiel takes place at a time when the nation is basically being taken captive one piece at a time. But he's in an interesting spot because he's actually in Babylon prophesying to the inhabitants of Jerusalem who are now all refugees in Babylon. And they're obsessed with saying, no, 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 we're still going to win. We're God's chosen people. There's no way God would ever let us stumble or fall or be dealt with uh, because, you know, we're the chosen people of God and our nation was founded on godly principles and our founding fathers were Christians or whatever else. And so there's no way that God is going to actually allow us to suffer judgment. And Ezekiel's job is to tell them, no, you're wrong. There's a consequence for sin and you are living out the consequences of your sin. And so, um, so that's sort of the big picture overview. Ezekiel gets called by God to deliver a message to his people, but to his people who are now deported, his people who are now refugees in Babylon. If you're looking at Ezekiel and you want to figure out like what's sort of the comprehensive message of the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel 
is written really for one purpose. Um, and it's a purpose that's repeated over and over and over. The Lord says it, uh, I counted 37 times, and there's probably a couple that I missed. But the Lord says over and over and over again, you're going to say this to the people, and then you're going to say this to the people, and you're going to say this to the people, and then he always says, and then they will know that I am the Lord. Thus they will know that I am the Lord. Then you will come to know that I am the Lord. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. The book of Ezekiel is written so that people will know that God is who he says he is. And so in that sense, it's very relevant for us because it's a book that is, that is written to help us know the Lord. It's a book that's written to help us know God. With that being said, it has a super bizarre intro, which can be sort of discouraging for the rest of the book. So um, the first three chapters is Ezekiel's call to ministry. And we've been covering this the last couple of weeks with Isaiah's call to ministry and Jeremiah's call to ministry. And these guys all have sort of similar bullet points with different experiences. And so in Ezekiel chapter 1, Ezekiel sees a vision of the Lord. And he sees the Lord surrounded by some of the angelic beings and he's trying to describe them, but his words really come completely short. And so we can read it and comprehend that there's something interesting going on. But really, none of us know what this looks like. All right, he sees these beasts that have six wings and four heads, and uh, it's like the head of a man, a lion, an eagle, and an ox. They have eyes all over the place. So he's trying to describe it, but that really doesn't make any sense. You can't comprehend what a lion, ox, eagle man looks like, especially when they have six wings and eyes everywhere. It just doesn't compute. And, but he's, and then basically above them, he sees the presence of God, and... Um, very similar to Isaiah and Jeremiah's call to ministry. He's undone. He falls down. Chapter 2, the Lord says to Ezekiel in verse 1, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. <clears throat> As he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. And he said to me, Son of man, I'm sending you to the sons of Israel. So Ezekiel sees the holiness of God. He collapses, um, aware of just that contrast between his wickedness and God's holiness. And God says, hey, stand up. I want to talk to you. And he stands up by the Holy Spirit. We don't stand in the presence of God just because we've got the gumption to. We stand in the presence of, the whole, of God because the Holy Spirit is indwelling in our hearts and because Jesus Christ has sanctified us. And so what we're seeing is, is just a great picture for the call to ministry. The call that each one of us has to serve the Lord, to be a part of his plan. And so it happens when we encounter the holiness of God and then we are empowered by God to walk in his calling. God will never call us to something that he can't do. He will all the time call us to things that we can't do. But he will call us to things that require the filling of his Holy Spirit. He will call us to things that require us to be in the word, to be focused on serving him, to be focused on, you know, the things of the Lord and not the things of the earth. And so he's called in chapter 2. In chapter 3 it goes on, um, we'll start in verse 4. And then he said to me, he being the Lord, Son of man, go to the house of Israel and speak with my words to them. For you are not being sent to a people of unintelligible speech or difficult language, but to the house of Israel, nor to many peoples of unintelligible speech or difficult language whose words you can't understand. But I have sent them to you who should listen to you. And yet the house of Israel will not be willing, willing to listen to you since they are not willing to listen to me. The Lord says, Ezekiel, here's your call to ministry. You go to the people who who know you, you go to the people whose language you speak, you go to the people whose culture you identify with, and you preach my word to them. Now, this does not mean 
that Christians should not have a vested interest in foreign missions or serving people of different cultures or helping people with different language backgrounds know the Lord. But oftentimes, I think it's important for us to go back to this because, <coughs> sorry, we've been talking a lot the last couple of weeks about this whole sort of man's idea of full-time ministry versus part-time ministry. And, and we have this hierarchy of spiritual order in the church too often. And usually at the top of that, we place people who go overseas to be missionaries. And the Lord's call to Ezekiel is, no, I've called you to be a missionary. You are living life on mission. You're going to do it with the people from your hometown. And so we are all in full-time ministry. And we are all on the mission field. None of us can ever say, gee, I would serve, like if the Lord called me to go to China, boy, I would just be an evangelist, right? If the Lord called me to move to, you know, Guatemala or California or some other foreign culture, I would be just, I would totally just go for it, right? But if the Lord called me to be a missionary to Madison, Indiana, gosh, that guy at Walmart is just flat out weird, right? That person in the checkout, that, that waiter, the person at the gas station, whoever they are, right? Because they're my culture, well, they're not like a real calling. They're not a real mission field. And the Lord says, no, they are. You understand very clearly that they are. And the point is not whether or not they listen to you. The point is that I called you. And he goes on in chapter 3. He'll repeat this pretty much verbatim again in chapter 33. But in chapter 3, he gives them what we call the principle of the watchman. He says, Ezekiel, I'm calling you to go. Your job is to deliver my word to, your, to the people. If they listen to you, that's great. If they don't listen to you, that's their problem. But if, they, but if you don't warn them, then there's going to be a level of accountability that falls to you. And we've got to be careful with this passage because we can guilt trip ourselves into, well, you know, if you don't, uh, basically, you know, if you don't work till you die for the Lord, then you're not really serving the Lord and it's your fault and you're going to have to pay the punishment for them. And the Lord's not saying that. But what he's saying is I'm going to present you with opportunities that you have an obligation to fulfill. And if, like Ezekiel, you know, some people are called to foreign mission fields. And some of us may be called to foreign mission fields. But if, like Ezekiel, we're called to our culture and our language, then we should live with that awareness of looking for those opportunities that the Lord presents to us. We should live with that expectation of, is there someone right now who needs to be presented with what the Word of God has to say? Is there someone in front of me who I need to demonstrate the love of God toward? Is there someone who needs to hear what God is doing in my life as a means of encouraging them and what they're going through in their life? But we are called, when, when the Lord provides us with those opportunities, and he provides us with those, those encounters, that is not the time to worry about whether or not the person looks like us, or the person acts like us, or the person votes like us, or the person thinks like us, or the person is anything like us. That's a time to say, here's the word of the Lord. And that's Ezekiel's call. And, that's, and really, it's our call. Ezekiel's call is very much what we are called to as Christians. So, so he's, he sees the holiness of God. He's filled with the Spirit. He's sent out. And he's told to proclaim the word of the Lord. The Lord, uh, the Lord has some really unique relationship, a really unique relationship with Ezekiel. He says, basically, I'm going to make your forehead as hard as their foreheads, and I'm going to make your forehead harder than flint. So if they want to smash you in the head with their bad ideas, you'll just keep standing and you'll be able to take it. He says, I'm going to make your tongue stick to the roof of your mouth so that you will be mute and can't rebuke them for they're a rebellious house. But when I speak to you, I'll open your mouth. So Ezekiel, during his time as a prophet, couldn't talk 
unless it was the voice of God coming out, which would be awful handy, truth be told, right? I mean, I think just, wouldn't that be nice to know that every single thing you were ever going to say was only going to be from the Lord? Like, our, our word count would drop dramatically, but, um, but it would be a lot more effective, right? So Ezekiel gets the call from God, and then the book divides pretty much into two sections. Um, basically, from chapter 1 up until chapter 32, he's getting a series of prophecies that are directly specific to uh, sort of his time, his period, the people he's trying to encourage. And then chapters 33 through the end of the book are a series of prophecies, um, most of which have not yet been fulfilled. And so it's, the book is basically going to be prophecy all the way through as we're looking at it from the vantage point of about 24, 2500 years later. The book kind of divides into here's what we've seen fulfilled, here's what we haven't. Here's what was written specifically to encourage the captives. Say, hey, here's what the Lord's going to do with the nations who are around you right now. And then the second half is portions that we still look at and say, this hasn't happened yet. This just, like, these events, these people have never lined up like this. And so, um, so the book basically divides there at chapter 32. But, so those first 32 chapters, Ezekiel just delivers all these prophecies from the Lord. And he sees, um, he gets called to all these kind of bizarre things. The Lord tells him, I want you to lay on one side for 390 days. Lay on, does it say side? Yeah, on your left side. Okay, because that makes sense. Um, and then lay on your right side for 40 days. Because, you know, what's more, like, relaxing after laying on one position for 390 days than to just lay in another position? And so, but he do, he's doing it as a symbol. He's trying to show the people something. He has Ezekiel make this, like, miniature model of Jerusalem and then smash it apart like a kid playing with blocks. He has Ezekiel shave off all his hair and he divides it into three piles and he chops one pile up with a sword and he burns one pile and he throws one pile to the wind. And he's, he has him make this fancy health food bread and, and bake it over dung. And he's, because he's giving them a picture of what the captivity is going to be like. And initially he says, you're going to bake it over human dung. And Ezekiel says, God, I, you know, I want to be obedient, but I'm going to have a really, really hard time with that. And God says, tell you what, I'll be gracious. Cow dung. And so he's got to bake his bread over dried cow dung. And so he has all these weird interactions with the Lord. But what's the point? The point from all of these is told to us over and over and over again. And so that then they will know that he is the Lord. Then they will know that the Lord is who he says. He's giving them these signs. He's giving them these prophecies and these visions so they will know that he's the Lord. So in chapter 4, he has to lay on his side. In chapter 10... He sees a vision of the glory of the Lord departing from the temple. And the Jews held a lot of stake in their temple. They said, you know, this is where the presence of God has been. There is no way God could ever abandon Jerusalem or abandon Judah because the temple's here. And God basically shows Ezekiel in a vision and says, the temple's there, but I'm not there. Ezekiel sees the glory of God departing from the temple, which is interesting because we're going to see eventually there's a future temple yet to be built. Um, he's... The Lord gives them all these comparisons. He compares the nation of Judah to the northern kingdom of Israel. He compares the nation of Judah to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's given them all these comparisons and basically just how perverted they've become in their sin. And, um, and then he gives a couple prophecies towards the end of this section that are really important for us to pay attention to as believers. And in chapter, uh, in chapter 29... He gives a prophecy against 
the city of Tyre. Tyre is a city, uh, it was a port city in the ancient world. Um, and basically, where he's going is, is they, had, they had been very wicked and they had rejoiced over Judah's fall. And so the Lord says, the city of Tyre is going to be destroyed. But starting in verse 7, for thus of, sorry, I didn't give you a chapter. Starting in chapter 26, verse 7. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. He'll slay your daughters on the mainland with the sword, and he will make siege walls against you, cast up a ramp against you, and raise up a large shield against you. The blow of his battering rams he will direct against your walls, and with his axes he will break down your towers. Because of the multitude of his horses, the dust raised by them will cover you. Your walls will shake at the noise of cavalry and wagons and chariots when he enters your gates, as men enter a city that is breached. With the hooves of his horses, he will trample all your streets. He will slay your people with the sword, and your strong pillars will come down to the ground. Verse 12. And they, notice the pronoun change. We went from he to they. And they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, break down your walls, destroy your pleasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. So I will silence the sound of your songs and the sound of your harps will be heard no more. I will make you a bare rock. You will be a place for the spreading of nets. You will be built no more. In these people's lifetimes, Nebuchadnezzar came and fought against the city of Tyre. And he fought against it, I think, for 12 years. Uh, before he finally broke through the walls. And when he broke through the walls, it was a ghost town. And during those 12 years, the entire city of Tyre had picked up and moved, because they were a port city. They had shipped the whole city out to a little island about a quarter mile off the coast. And Nebuchadnezzar couldn't reach them. So he spent 12 years, and normally the way you pay your army is when you win, everybody gets a cut of the, of the plunder. And so he didn't get to pay his army. And so they were all super mad, so they burnt the city to the ground. But it didn't really fulfill the prophecy because the Lord said they are going to throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water and, and make you a bare rock. So it kind of was fulfilled, right? Nebuchadnezzar did come and he did tear down the city and, and he, did, he did burn the city and he did conquer the city. But it kind of looks like the prophecy is unfulfilled. Well, 250 years later, Alexander the Great decided to conquer the world because he was bored. And so he decided to conquer the world. He's going to conquer... Tyre, and he didn't have the navy to come at them from the, from the Mediterranean, so he had, to, he had to conquer them. What did he do? He took all the ruined debris from the city of Tyre, Nebuchadnezzar had burnt, and he pushed it all into the water. And then he scraped all the dirt off and packed it in. He built a causeway, and his whole army marched out to the island city of Tyre and destroyed it. And if you Google it when you get home, you can still see Alexander's Causeway. And the sand is built up around it, and people, you can fish there and spread your nets there, and it's not been rebuilt. So the Lord gives a prophecy. It's partially fulfilled in the time of Nebuchadnezzar, and then in the time of Alexander the Great, it's completely fulfilled. Alexander literally pushed it into the ocean. He literally scraped it till it was a bare rock. Alexander fulfilled the prophecy of the Lord. The Lord's word will always be fulfilled. And Ezekiel is a great book for studying prophecy, because the scriptures give us a very clear test for prophets. In the Old Testament law, the Lord said, if somebody comes to you and says, this is the word of the Lord, and they give you some sort of future far out reference, they need to be able to give you a short term prophecy to back it up. Because anybody can tell you what's going to happen in 4,000 years. 
because neither you nor they will be around to check their validity, right? When, they were, when the Apollo missions were going to land on the moon, they were interviewing some scientists, according to legend, and he was explaining how, you know, a million years ago, nobody could have landed on the moon because whatever was wrong, and a million years from now, nobody will land on the moon. And he said, what do you think is going to happen when the guys touch down in just a couple minutes? He said, well, let's just wait and see. And why do you think he said that? Because nobody could prove him wrong on either of the other two claims, but if he made a hard statement right then, he, could have, he would have either been right or wrong. And the scripture encourages us, test the spirits. When something claims to be from God, test it. And so the word of God holds itself to the same standard it demands of other, of other texts, the same standard it demands of other people who claim to be prophets. It gives us short-term prophecies and long-term prophecies. And so we can see short-term prophecies like the destruction of Tyre that have been fulfilled even over maybe a couple hundred years. And we look at prophecies that have not yet been fulfilled and we can trust, based on the accuracy of the first ones, that the Lord's still capable and still going to fulfill the future ones. So there's a prophecy against Tyre. There's a prophecy against Egypt that's really interesting in chapter 29. Verse 14 the Lord says, I will turn the fortune of Egypt and make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin, because they had been carried away by the Babylonians. And there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms, and it will never again lift itself up above the nations. And I will make them so small that they will not rule over the nations. And it will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. Then they will know that I am the Lord." So bear in mind, throughout most of Israel's history, they'd have been tempted to trust in Egypt as their source of strength instead of trusting in the Lord. And that's one of the things that the Lord deals with them over and over again, through Isaiah, through Jeremiah. He's saying, you cannot go back to Egypt. Egypt is not a source of strength. I am your source of strength. And they perpetually just ignored the Lord. And so the Lord says, you know what? So he's dealing with Egypt for their own sins, because Egypt was a wicked nation at this point. But he says, I'm going to bring them back. I'm going to let the Egyptians come back to Egypt. But they're never going to be a world-dominating power again. Now, we're standing here tonight, sitting here, over 2,000 years later, right? What is Egypt right now? It's still a king. It's still a nation, right? Is it a, is it a powerhouse? Do we, like, you know, when we're examining the news right now, right? Nobody's really talking about Egypt. No, Egypt is... You know, Egypt right now is sort of friends with Israel, and Israel appreciates it. But Israel's not banking on Egypt bailing them out if they go to war. Because Egypt is not a super powerful kingdom. And especially if you consider what Egypt was. I mean, the Egyptian dynasties that built the pyramids are still alive in our cultural imagination. We still envision, you know, that kind of wealth and that kind of power and the pharaohs and all of that. And Egypt has never gotten anywhere close to that since then. Because the Lord always fulfills his word. He's been fulfilling this prophecy for over 2,000 years. And so we can look then with confidence at what he says is coming and have that expectation in our own lives. So that sort of brings us to the end of chunk one. Chunk two, he gives us the, the picture of the watchman again and says, hey, you deliver my word to the people. And it doesn't matter if they listen to you or not. Your job is to deliver. And I think it's no coincidence that he, Ezekiel gets given that warning before each of these chunks of prophecy. Because I think for us, you know, there's sort of the relevance of the present day, but then there's also the relevance of we live with an expectation of the Lord coming back. We live with an expectation of fulfilled prophecy. And in both cases, we still live with that need 
to distribute the word of God, to share the word of God, to, to let it impact our lives so that it impacts the lives of those around us. So in chapter 33, Ezekiel is given the reminder of the watchman. And then he's given a few more prophecies. And in chapter 37, no, and then in chapter 34, I hate it when I'm writing out my notes and I forget something and then I draw the arrow to remind myself and then I don't see the arrow. But, um, but it happens. In chapter 34, the Lord prophesies about himself. And in verse 11, he says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. He'd been prophesying against the false religious leaders and basically using the metaphor of they're bad shepherds. Verse 12, As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he's among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. The Lord makes a promise here that he is going to be the shepherd. We talked about this last week. We talked about it when we were in Psalms. We'll talk about it when we get into the Gospel of John. The Lord is promising to be the shepherd. And that's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The Lord here in Ezekiel is saying, you guys have had a string of bad shepherds who are interested in self-promotion and their own gain. I'm going to find the broken and the sick and the weak among you, and I'm going to be your shepherd. And so he's prophesying here right about himself. So it's important, you know, as we're looking for where's the relevance of the New Testament in the Old Testament, it's right there. The Lord's saying, I'm going to deliver my people. And he has, right? And then chapter 37, uh, Ezekiel gets a vision of this whole valley full of dry bones. And the Lord says, Ezekiel, pop quiz. Ezekiel says, okay. The Lord says, do you think these bones can live again? Now, I think every person in the room knows the answer to that. If you see a pile of bones, are they going to come back to life? No, they're not. But Ezekiel's been around the Lord long enough that he knows not to give obvious answers to obvious questions. So he says, Lord, you know, right? I bet, I bet if you got a plan, God, you might be doing something that I'm not thinking of. And the Lord says, good answer. So then he says to me, so then he tells Ezekiel, I want you to prophesy to the bones. Tell them to come back together. Tell them to come to life. And so Ezekiel in this vision is standing out in the middle of this giant valley and he has to yell at all the bones and tell them to come together. And then he has to yell at all the bones and all, they grow flesh and human skin. And then he yells at all the bones and they stand up on their feet. It's kind of an interesting vision. And then verse 11 of chapter 37 then he, that's the Lord, said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say our bones are dried up and our hope is perished. We are completely cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God. Behold, I will open your graves and cause you to come up out of your graves, my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. Then you'll know that I'm the Lord. When I have opened your graves and caused you to come out of your graves, my people, I will put my spirit within you and you will come to life and I will place you on your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and done it. 
The Lord says, these people are just, you know, the Israelites at this point, really, as a nation, they're dead. They're captured by their enemies. And he says, I'm going to bring them out of their graves. Well, what happens historically? Israel, they're under Babylonian rule. They're under Persian rule. They're under Greek rule. They're under Roman rule. And then the nation of Israel's taken over, right? Israel as a nation ceases to exist for 19 millennia. For 1,900 years, there's no nation of Israel. And it's interesting that he says, I'm going to bring them out of the graves. You know, truthfully, Israel exists as a modern state because out of the Holocaust, the world said, we need to give the Israelite, the Jewish people, their homeland. Truthfully, as, as terrible as it was, the Holocaust was, in a sense, a kind of a catalyst that sort of shocked the world into saying, we have got to show some respect to the Jewish people. And so even part of that prophecy is they're out of the graves, they're going to come, I'm going to bring them back to their land. Israel, 1,900 years after they're destroyed, comes back. And Hebrew comes back as a language. Hebrew was a dead language. It was like Latin. Okay, it's like Babylonian or whatever, any of these other ancient languages. Hebrew comes back into play. It's now the national language of the state of Israel. Israel comes back to life. Why? Because God always fulfills his word. Now, even in this prophecy, it looks like we've seen part of it and maybe not all of it because he says, I'll put my spirit within you and you'll come to life. Spiritually, the nation of Israel is very dead right now, still to this day. So in a sense, the Lord has put his spirit in them and they're coming back to life. But there's going to be a much fuller sense during the book of Revelation when the nation of Israel is going to experience a major revival and the Lord is going to bring in 144,000 Jewish evangelists and they're going to go throughout the world spreading the gospel. And, and John's going to describe a scene. He says, I'm seeing thousands upon thousands and you can't count them. So we don't know how many that is. That's an awful lot, right? The nation of Israel is going to have a revival. And so this prophecy, I think very much like that prophecy about the destruction of Tyre, you know, there's a point in time in which you could see part of the fulfillment, but maybe not all the fulfillment, until Alexander came. I think for us, we can see part of the fulfillment, which is the rebirth of the nation of Israel, but not all of the fulfillment, which is we haven't seen a massive revival amongst the Jewish people. But I think we're going to. Chapter, <clears throat> so 37, he says, I'm going to bring Israel back and make them a nation. And we've got to pause. We've talked the last several weeks in a row, I think in a row, um, we said, you know, Eastern writing isn't necessarily meant to be taken chronologically, right? Sometimes it's written in much more like with points of emphasis, okay? Ezekiel appears, and I'm using the word appears, appears by and large to be a chronological prophecy. Not saying I'm positive, not saying we're certain, but a lot of these events do seem to line up in a chronological fashion. So we're just throwing that out. So chapter 37, the Lord says, I'm going to bring Israel back. I'm going to basically bring the nation of Israel back to life. Chapter 38, the Lord describes an event that has not happened yet. He describes an invasion against the nation of Israel. And this is not, some people look at this and think this is the battle of Armageddon at the end of the book of Revelation. I don't think it is. Because in Revelation, it describes that battle as all peoples and all the armies of the world gathered against the Lord. In this, we're given a specific set of names. And it's important for us to look at this, I think, because it should cause us to live with that sense of the watchman, with that sense of awareness. So it gives us a lot of names that are foreign names. He says, 
Set your face toward Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And then he describes, basically, they're going to come up against Israel and Persia and Ethiopia and put with them and Gomer with all of its troops and Beth Tagarma from the remote parts of the north. Many peoples with you. I don't think anybody in the tourism industry is going to Beth Tagarma right now or Gomer. Um, but if we take these names and go back the ancient sources and look at where it's talking about, basically here's what it is. The Lord basically says, here's what's going to happen. Russia, Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, and Libya, and maybe a couple others depending on how you interpret some of the ancient names, are going to launch an attack against Israel with the intent to destroy it. Russia, Iran, Turkey, Ethiopia, Libya. Isn't that an interesting list? Do you read, do you read the news? Russia has been funneling weapons into Iran for decades now. Iran's been funneling oil and money into Russia for decades now. Turkey spent decades trying to join, you know, sort of cozy up to Europe, and just in the last couple of years said, no, the heck with that. You guys want us to modernize too much. We're going to sort of swing back to being a little more hardcore Muslim. Ethiopia and Libya are some of the biggest hotbeds of radical Islam in the world today. And so it's very conceivable right now that maybe a coalition of these nations could come against the nation of Israel. And, you know, especially right now, um, Russia is getting a little bit desperate. They're cozying up to Iran because they need money and oil and Iran wants weapons, right? But it goes on and it describes, and there's a couple of people who aren't in the list of the invaders. Egypt is not in the list. Iraq is not in the list. Syria is not in the list. Now, up until a few decades ago, all three of those in any attack against Israel would have been totally on board. But, you know, within our lifetimes, within my lifetime, and I'm not that old, Egypt is now allies with Israel, not because they like Israel, but because they're scared of Iran. Iraq is trying to rebuild something that resembles a stable society, and Syria is so decimated by civil war that they can't do anything other than fight for their own survival. So for the first time, understand this, for the first time in world history, uh, the political alliances are all in place right now for this event to take place. It goes on, and there's a reference. It says in verse 13, Sheba and Dedan and the merchants of Tarshish and all its villages will say to you, Have you come to capture spoil? Have you assembled your company to seize plunder and to carry away silver and gold? So Sheba and Dedan and Tarshish are basically going to say, Guys, this is, you know, this is wrong. This is really bad. We, we strongly condemn these attacks, uh, but they're not really going to do anything. And uh, so geographically, a lot of people take this to be Saudi Arabia. And some people take Tarshish with all of its villages to reference Britain, because they think Tarshish might have been a port in Britain, uh, and sort of the English-speaking world. So some people look at this prophecy and see this as Saudi Arabia and the English-speaking world are going to say this is wrong, but they're not going to do anything about it. Now try and envision a world where Russia might launch an unprovoked attack against a nation because they want to expand their territory. Now try and envision a world where Iran and Turkey might come into play and say, yeah, we'll come with you. Try and envision a world where the United States might say, this is, this is bad, this is awful, but might not actually do anything about it. That's pretty darn foreseeable, right? That, that's incredibly foreseeable in our present day. Um, and, and so... It's going to, so it's going to happen at some point in time. Now, 
it may not happen right now. Because Satan is always trying to destroy the nation of Israel. And so he's always trying to line up whoever he can. And so it might be that right now it looks like this and the Lord's going to say, nope, not yet. We're going to you know, make Russia and Iran hate each other and, and we'll throw this back another couple decades or a couple centuries. And that could be, could be. But for the very first time in all of world history, these alliances are in place. And then in chapter 39, well, end of chapter 38, into chapter, into chapter 39. Basically, these nations all attack Israel. Israel's standing alone by itself against some of the biggest military power in the world. And the Lord says, verse 22 of 38, with pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment on him and I will rain on him and on his troops and on the many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire and brimstone. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am the Lord. The Lord says in that moment and in that day when Israel is standing alone, I'm going to deliver Israel. I'm going to stand up and I'm going to fight for my people. Why? so that they will know that I am the Lord. I will magnify myself, sanctify myself, and make myself known in the sight of many nations. So, and then he, you know, he describes basically, you know, sort of the, just the cleanup efforts. It's going to be so massive by the time these armies are destroyed. But the Lord says, I'm going to do this to magnify myself. Now, why do I make such a, you know, we've been talking on Sundays we aren't looking for the Antichrist. We're not looking for all the signs of the end times. What are we looking for? We're looking for the return of Christ. So then why does this prophecy matter? Well, here's the deal. We don't know for sure when this prophecy is going to happen. We know it's never happened. There's no battle that comes anywhere close to being a fulfillment of this prophecy. It's going to happen at some point in time. There's a lot of ground to speculate that it'll probably happen either right before or right after the rapture of the church. Why? Because it's going to set up a major power vacuum that is going to be all of a sudden very much convenient for the Antichrist to rise into. Okay? So, I mean, imagine if basically Russia's gone, Iran is gone, Turkey's gone. The United States is apparently a non-player at this point, which is truthfully foreseeable. Okay, if all that happens either right before or right after the rapture of the church, and then every Christian in the world is gone, there's going to be a massive power vacuum. And so, so what do we do? Well, so it might be after the rapture of the church. I'm not sure. I, but I personally wonder if it's going to be before and shortly before because I, the Lord says, I'm going to magnify myself and make myself known in the sight of many nations. Wouldn't it be interesting if Russia started amassing troops and Iran started amassing troops and they planned this whole invasion and we're watching it kind of like we all watched the build-up to the Ukrainian invasion, right? We, we, for a couple months before Russia launched their invasion this year, everybody said, you know, do you think they're going to invade? Do you think they're not going to invade? Wouldn't it be interesting if a bunch of psycho-Christians all said, you know, I don't know if Russia's going to invade Israel or not, but if Russia and Iran invade, the Lord is going to fight for Israel. And then as a world, we watch the entire, the, you know, the Russian army get destroyed. We watch the Iranian army get destroyed. Don't you think that would sort of magnify the Lord? Don't you think, and, and I think biblically, it's very feasible because over and over, the Lord gives these long periods of grace and then he gives a final pocket, right? Noah spent a hundred years building the ark and answering all of his neighbor's questions about what are you building? And then it says there were seven days between when the last animal went in 
and the Lord closed the door. For, the, for that last little week, window of time, Noah had a chance to go out and tell everybody he could that the Lord is, you know, the Lord is going to bring judgment. And so it's, I think, very feasible that the Lord might allow this battle to happen. Why? So that we can take the call that the Lord gave to Ezekiel that applies to our own lives and say, okay, let's magnify the Lord. Let's, you know, I'm not telling you what's going to happen so you can say, wow, dude, you're brilliant. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen so you can say, wow, the word of God is living and active. And it is alive and it has relevance for your heart today. And so you need to get right with the Lord. I think, I think there's a very strong chance. Now again, we're looking to future events. So I'm not saying here is what's going to happen. I'm saying here's what I think is a high likelihood of happening. It's not the same thing. Right? Now, okay, whatever. I'm, I'm a punk 20-something-year-old. So oftentimes I talk like it is the same thing. But it's not. I'm saying here's what I think might happen. I'm not saying here's what is going to happen. This battle is going to happen. Is it going to happen in our lifetimes? I'm not sure. But I think it might. And if it does, why is it going to happen? It's going to happen so that they will know, God says, that I am the Lord. And so if this happens, if we get to see this happen in our lifetime, it's for the sake and the purpose of glorifying the Lord and spreading the gospel. And so we live with that awareness. We live with that, that hope and that expectation. We are looking for Jesus to come back. Absolutely. I am, I am so ready. We are looking for Jesus to return any day. Notice, I didn't say it's going to happen before the rapture. I said it might. Uh, we could all go right now. And that would be fantastic. We don't know when it's going to happen, and so we should live with that sense of urgency because the rapture might happen first. This might happen first. Who knows? What I do know is we've all been given that call of the watchman to live with awareness, to live like we have a limited time frame with which to operate. And that really wraps up a big chunk of the prophecy. The, the last 10 chapters, uh, last chapter 40 through chapter 48, last nine chapters, uh, deal with a future temple that's yet to be built. And it's really true. It's hard to read. It's probably the hardest nine chapters in the scripture to read just because it's a lot of architectural details. And truthfully, I'm not positive where this temple falls. A lot of people think it's probably a temple that's going to be built to the Lord during the millennial kingdom. I don't fully know how it works. I'm not sure. Um, I have a lot of pastors who I have an immense amount of respect for would say, you know, I'm not sure. And so I think that's probably a reasonable statement to make. It seems like it might be saying that a temple that's built during the millennial kingdom. It's not the dimension of the, this temple. Don't line up with any temple in Jerusalem that's ever existed. And so it's future. We're not sure when. But that's really the book of Ezekiel. And Ezekiel is all about what? It's about living with that call of God in our lives. And it's about knowing the Lord so that we can make him known. It always has to be that order. We don't, we don't serve the Lord and then know the Lord. We know the Lord and then serve the Lord. And with Isaiah, with Jeremiah, and with Ezekiel, they all encountered the Lord and then were equipped. You will not be equipped to serve the Lord unless you've had an encounter with the Lord. Unless the Lord is real to you, you are not going to be able to faithfully serve the Lord. It has got to be in that sequence. And so we have got to live with that hunger to know the Lord. It is great. It is critical 
to want to be used by the Lord. But that is step B. Much more so, we should have a desperation to know the Lord. Ezekiel had that relationship with the Lord. Isaiah, Jeremiah, in two weeks, Daniel had that relationship with the Lord. All the minor prophets, they had that relationship with the Lord. And we are invited into that same relationship. We're invited to let the Spirit of God send us out because he's dwelling within us. Right? That's the message of Ezekiel for us today. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it has so much relevance to us. 2,000 some odd years later, God, it's still speaking to us. It's still powerful. It's still shaping us. And we pray that it would go deep in our hearts, that we would live with that sense of the watchman, that we would uh, recognize that, that need to share what we've been given, that we wouldn't be holding it within ourselves, that we would uh, just be, be bursting out with all the fullness of your spirit, that we'd be walking in obedience in an, an infectious way. God, we want to spread the love that we've found and, and the mercy and the redemption and the grace that we have been partakers of. So I pray that you would fill us up, God. Help us to know you. Help us to effectively make you known. And we pray as, as we're looking for the return of Christ, that you would keep us watchful, that we would have our eyes open, we'd have our lamps ready, that we'd be ready to go. God, we don't want to live with any hesitations or any regrets. I pray that you would keep us focused on the glory of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen.